The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of Chapter 7 and the first half of Part 2, Chapter 1. The old woman opens the door a crack and stares at Raskolnikov with sharp, suspicious eyes. Fearing she might close the door, he draws it towards him, dragging her with it. She steps back in alarm. He tries to reassure her, reminding her who he is and why he has come, and passing into the room uninvited. But his voice cracks and shakes. She stares at him silently, with a mistrustful and malicious sneer. For a moment, he considers running away. He then has an impulse to say assertively that if she doesn't want his pledge, he will take it elsewhere. His tone restores her confidence, though she asks why he is pale and trembling. His response, that he is feverish and hasn't eaten, sounds like the truth. He gives her the pledge, and, as he had planned, she turns her back to him as she struggles to untie the string. He takes the axe from the noose, and, scarcely conscious of himself, almost mechanically, swings it with both arms and brings the blunt side down on her head. She cries out faintly, sinks to a heap on the floor, and raises her hands to her head, one hand still holding the pledge. He deals her another blow in the same spot, blood gushes from her cracked skull, and she is dead. With trembling hands, but free from confusion or giddiness, he carefully enacts the next steps in his plan. He pulls the keys from her pocket, careful not to get smeared with blood, and runs to the other room to try them in the locks of the chest of drawers. For an instant, he is overtaken by a desire to give it all up and go away. But he thinks to himself that it is too late, and the feeling passes. He is next overcome by terror that she might not be dead. But returning to examine her, he sees clearly that her skull is broken. During this examination, he notices a string around her neck. And after a struggle to cut the string from her dress, he discovers that it is, as he suspected, a purse, and he thrusts it in his pocket. Rushing back into the bedroom, he finds that the keys will not fit in the locks of the chest of drawers. Feeling under the bedstead, he discovers a box with an arched lid, and he succeeds in opening it with one of the keys. He wipes his bloody hands on a coat of red brocade inside the box, thinking it will be less noticeable, but afterward in terror that he has done so. Also inside the box are various articles of gold that he stuffs inside the pockets of his trousers and overcoat. Suddenly, he hears steps in the other room, and a faint cry, and he jumps up and runs into the room with his axe. There he finds Lizaveta, with a big bundle in her arms. She begins backing away, staring at him in terror, but unable to scream. She puts up her hand as if to motion him away, as the axe falls with a sharp blow and splits her skull at the top of her head. At this second, unexpected murder, fear overtakes Raskolnikov, and he longs to run away. A feeling of loathing surges up in him, 
growing stronger every moment, while at the same time a sort of blank dreaminess overtakes him, and he begins to forget himself. He finds a bucket of water in the kitchen and spends minutes washing his hands and the axe with soap. He examines his clothes and discovers stains only on his boots. He feels lost in thought, incapable of reasoning or protecting himself. At that moment, he notices that the door to the stairs is ajar, and has been since Lizaveta came in. He runs to the door, closes it, and fastens the latch. Then he thinks to himself that he must get away, and he unfastens it, listening on the staircase. Just as he is about to take a step toward the stairs, he hears the steps of a man climbing them. He steps back into the flat and quietly slips the hook into the catch. The visitor rings the bell, and, when no one responds, tugs violently at the door, shaking the hook in its fastening as if he might break it. Then he cries out to himself, Are they asleep or murdered? as Raskolnikov gazes at the door in blank terror. A moment later, another man approaches and addresses the first. Both are customers, there hoping to get money, and they are indignant that the old woman does not answer. When they notice that the door is locked with the hook from inside and not the key from outside, they know that someone must be at home, and they begin to suspect something is wrong. The first customer, a man named Koch, remains at the door while the other runs for the porter. Raskolnikov is in a delirium, preparing to fight should they come in, but tempted also to just end it all and shout to them through the door. When several minutes pass and the other man does not return, Koch deserts his sentry and thumps down the stairs. Raskolnikov waits there till there is no sound and seizes the opportunity to run down the stairs himself. After descending three flights, he hears several men noisily mounting the stairs, and just as all hope seems lost, he sees his deliverance, an empty flat with the door wide open where painters had been at work. He waits inside the flat until they pass, tiptoes out, and runs down the stairs. Crossing paths with no one, he passes through the gate and onto the street. Feeling more dead than alive, he walks down the street, knowing the men on the stairs are about to discover the bodies and realize that the murderer had just been there. He is afraid to quicken his pace and arouse suspicion, unsure where to hide or what to do. He becomes so drenched in perspiration that it catches the attention of a passerby. Only dimly conscious of himself, Raskolnikov takes a long way round to get home, so that he approaches from a different direction, and passes through the gateway to his house. In another stroke of fortune, the porter's room is unlocked, and no one at home, though Raskolnikov thinks to himself that if the porter had been at home, he would simply have walked in and handed him the axe. He restores the axe to its place under the bench, climbs the stairs to his room, and sinks, not into sleep, but into a blank forgetfulness, with scraps and shreds of thoughts he cannot catch, swarming in his brain. Now and then Raskolnikov seems to wake up from his dazed oblivion, 
but it does not occur to him to get up. Hearing familiar noises from the street, he realizes it is past two o'clock, and he leaps up from the sofa, suddenly recalling everything. A dreadful chill comes over him, and he is taken with violent shivering. He realizes he had come in without fastening the door, and had thrown himself on the sofa without undressing, and he wonders what anyone would have thought if they had come in. He begins taking off his clothes, examining them for traces. He finds only some thick, congealed drops of blood on the frayed edge of his trousers, and he cuts them off with a knife. He suddenly remembers all the things he had stuffed in his pockets, and he takes them out, flings them on the table, and then collects them again and stuffs the whole heap in a hole in the wall under a tattered piece of wallpaper that was coming up. He feels momentarily gleeful, then immediately doubtful about his hiding place. He sits on the couch and again sinks into a drowsy delirium. A few minutes later, he jumps up abruptly, realizing he had forgotten to take the noose from his coat. He pulls it off, cuts it to pieces, and stuffs it under his pillow. He notices that he has left the frayed rags he had cut from his trousers in the middle of the floor, where anyone could see them. He is overtaken by a strange idea, that maybe all his clothes are covered in blood, but that his reason is clouded and he cannot see it. It occurs to him to check his pockets for traces of blood, where indeed he finds them. He cuts the pocket out, feeling reassured that his reason has not quite deserted him. Then he notices some drops of blood on his sock, and taking off his boot, discovers that the whole tip is soaked in blood. He gathers up the sock and the rags and the pocket, and stands in the middle of the room wondering what is to be done with them. Burn them? Go out and throw them away somewhere? He sinks back on the pillow instead and an icy shiver comes over him. There is a violent knocking at the door, and he rises to let in Nastasia and the porter, thinking they have discovered all, and declaring, Come what may. The porter tells Raskolnikov that he has brought a summons from the police, and hands him a piece of paper. Raskolnikov then notices that he still holds in his right hand all the shreds of bloody cloth. Anastasia laughs at him for clinging to rags as if they were treasure. He thrusts them into his pocket, says he will go to the police at once, and sets out down the stairs. Once outside, he breaks the seal of the notice and discovers it is an ordinary summons. He is bewildered why such a thing would have happened on that very day. He flings himself on his knees to pray, and then laughs not at the idea of prayer, but at himself. He suddenly wonders what to do with the sock, decides to put it back on, feels repulsed with horror, and then laughs again, telling himself that view is conventional, relative, merely a way of looking at it. But his laughter is quickly followed by despair. On the stairs, he wonders whether he has been summoned so that the police might search his apartment while he is out whether they will discover the things in the hole under the paper. But he just waves his hand and determines to go on and get it over. He looks down the street at the house, 
and he feels again that when he gets to the police station, he might simply confess. He walks a quarter mile to the police station, climbs the stairs through stifling heat and fearful smells coming from the open doors of flats, and as he reaches the office, thinks again that he will simply fall on his knees and confess. He shows the notice to the head clerk, who glances at it and tells him to wait a minute, and Raskolnikov breathes a sigh of relief, thinking, it can't be that. He sits waiting in terrible inner turmoil, trying to distract himself by examining the fashionable and foppish head clerk. All at once, an officer with an insolent expression walks in jauntily. Noticing Raskolnikov's stare at him, and feeling affronted that, quote, such a ragged fellow was not annihilated by the majesty of his glance, unquote, he shouts, what do you want? Raskolnikov says he was summoned by a notice, and the head clerk interrupts that it was for money due, and flings a document at him telling him to read it. And again, Raskolnikov feels relief that it is only an issue of money. The officer, an assistant superintendent, repeatedly and loudly condescends to Raskolnikov, who takes satisfaction in bold rejoinders that anger the officer still more. He shouts at Raskolnikov that the document is a complaint against him for the recovery of money on an IOU, and that he must pay it. Raskolnikov insists that he is not in debt to anyone. And that is where we left off, and we'll pick up the chapter next time. The next of my posts was called Simple Arithmetic. In Chapter 6, we are told that Raskolnikov had long ago been occupied by the question of why almost all crimes are badly concealed and easily detected. He had concluded that most criminals are subject to, quote, a failure of will and reasoning power by a childish and phenomenal heedlessness at the very instant when prudence and caution are most essential, unquote. And that, quote, in his own case, there could not be such a morbid reaction, that his reason and will would remain unimpaired at the time of carrying out his design, for the simple reason that his design was not a crime, unquote. I have to believe we will learn much more about why Raskolnikov is convinced that this murder is not a crime. For now, we know that the argument put forth by the student in the tavern, that she is a worthless old woman who doesn't deserve to live, and that her one death would mean life for thousands, mirror the very arguments that Raskolnikov himself had been conceiving. He appears to agree with the student that the justice of killing the old woman is simple arithmetic. In witnessing the murder and its immediate aftermath, we see that his conviction that the murder is not a crime categorically does not save him from such a morbid reaction. Here are a few things that I think are noteworthy about his reaction in reality. In the moments before the crime, he is in a condition of sheer terror. As the old woman stares at him, he feels as if he is losing his head, and he is desperate to run away. He is pale, his hands tremble, and his voice cracks. As he frees the axe from the noose, he feels fearfully weak, increasingly numb, and overwhelmed by giddiness. 
The murder itself is not an act of will, but seems to happen from some sort of morbid inertia. When he reaches for the axe, he is scarcely conscious of himself. He swings it mechanically, almost without effort, and he seems not to use his own strength. Afterward, far from being superior to the conventional criminal's heedlessness, he makes one egregious error after another, and feels continually overwhelmed by terror that there is something he is overlooking. Far from maintaining his powers of reason, he is driven mad by fear that his own mind cannot be trusted, and that he is incapable of reasoning. He immediately wants nothing to do with the spoils of his crime. As soon as he begins to fit the keys into the chest, a convulsive shudder passes over him, and he feels tempted to give it all up and go away. After the murder of Lizaveta, a feeling of loathing surges up within him, and he realizes, quote, he would not now have gone to the box or even into the room for anything in the world, unquote. He feels repeatedly compelled to give himself up, to cry out to the customers on the other side of the door, to walk in and hand the porter the axe, to go to the police station and fall on his knees. His basic mental state after the crime is one of blank, forgetful, dazed oblivion. He repeatedly finds himself overcome by fits of fevered shivering and sinks into drowsiness and delirium. And his efforts to reason himself out of his loathing and horror, to convince himself that the repulsion he feels when he puts on the bloody sock is merely conventional and a way of looking at it, fails utterly and leaves him in despair. He had expected to maintain a clear-headed serenity after a crime that was simple arithmetic. But it seems the formula is more complicated and may involve factors that he hasn't considered. The last of my posts was called Becoming Raskolnikov. Coincidentally, one of my favorite writers, Douglas Murray, just last week released an article in the journal Unheard called It's No Crime to Come Late to Dostoevsky as part of their series of Christmas reading recommendations. In it, this exceptionally well-read author confesses that he only just read Crime and Punishment for the first time. Incidentally, he also ridicules those who evade that confession by falsely claiming to have just reread the novel. So, for the record, I really did read the novel once before, but admittedly too long ago to recall much of anything about it. In his article, Murray effectively admits he had expected crime and punishment to be a chore, by reassuring readers that it wasn't, and explaining why not. He says, quote, Crime and punishment is not a chore, and it is most certainly worth the journey. From the start, I couldn't put it down. Then, after the first hundred pages or so, I had to. Not least because I was starting to feel like I had committed the crime myself. Dostoevsky's description of the lead-up to the terrible act, with Raskolnikov feeling drawn towards his crime as someone whose clothing has got caught up in a machine, tugs the reader in with it. The crime itself is described with such vivid horror 
that you might be forgiven for sweating through it, as I did, unquote. Another essay I read recently by writer, translator, and literary critic Lefkadio Hearn expressed a similar sentiment. He writes, quote, The power of the book lies in its marvelous dissection of intricate mental characteristics, in its unaffected intensity of realism, in a verisimilitude so extraordinary that the reader is compelled to believe himself to be the criminal, to feel the fascination of the crime, to endure the excitement of it, to enjoy the penetration of it, to vibrate with the terror of it, to suffer all the nightmares, all the horrors, all the degradation, all the punishment of it. This is what causes so terrible a nervous strain on the reader. He actually becomes Raskolnikov the murderer, and feels, thinks, dreams, trembles, as the criminal whose psychology is thus exposed for him. The perusal of the pages seems to produce a sort of avatar, a change of souls. If the reader is not wholly Raskolnikov, he is at least wholly Dostoevsky the author, nearly crazed by his own thoughts. And all the personages of the narrative live with the same violence of realism." Unquote. If Douglas Murray sweated reading it, and Lafcadio Hearn suffered reading it, you can imagine how I felt reading it, out loud. You'll probably not be surprised to learn that a few nights ago I woke up abruptly in a panic that would not subside, because I had just had a vivid nightmare about someone chasing me through the streets. With an axe. In any case, though it might be a dubious Christmas recommendation for the very reasons that recommend it, I certainly agree that the horrors of this novel are experienced as very, very real. <laughs>